Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you just for the joy in this place here this morning. And the joy is all because of you and your son. It is, it is your son that gives us joy. It is your son that, that, Lord, gives us peace. It is your son that gives us hope. And Father, I just, I thank you. I, I thank you for just um, bringing us all together here this morning and uh, knitting our hearts in worship uh, of you and your Son and your Holy Spirit. And Lord, now I pray that that worship would continue through, Lord, the proclamation of your word. And Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to understand, and Lord, to apply the truths that we will learn uh, today and all days. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> I thought I would just continue on with our Christmas uh, concert theme for this morning's message. So it was a little more Christmas oriented. And, and of course, that is the fact that hope has a name. And back uh, when we had our concert, I had mentioned that famous line from Romeo and Juliet, what's in a name? And there are many names that when we hear them, certain images and and thoughts, pictures come up in our minds. So we will go ahead and continue to have a little uh, more um, audience participation. For instance, when I say the name, and you can say back what you think, Bill Gates, you might think rich. When I say Bernie Madoff, you might think crook. If I say the Incredible Hulk, kids, what do you think of? Strength, Peter Pan, fly, Albert Einstein, genius, smart, yes, Abraham Lincoln, honest, Jack Frost, cold, Cupid, love, Scrooge, you know, I, I, love the, I, love, I love Scrooge and Dickens, and you're probably thinking that he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Isn't that what you're thinking? <laughs> Jesus. Savior. So today for our Christmas message, we are going to, again, stay with this theme, Hope Has a Name, and consider some of the names of Jesus that we find in the scriptures and of course what those names mean and why they're important. And I pray that once you understand what's in his name, that will certainly serve to draw you closer to your Savior. Maybe for some of you it will even draw you to Jesus for the very first time. And I pray that you will be awed, yes, at his birth, but just also at who he is. And I pray that you will sing his praises the way the angels did. I I pray that you will bow down in worship as the shepherds and the wise men did. I pray it will be your desire to love and obey him, to put him first in your life and increase your motivation for witnessing. And lastly, that we all might have a greater longing for his second return, his next advent. 
So the first name is, of course, Jesus. You can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be going through a number of these, so we're not, it's kind of like the, the bird's eye view of some of these texts, <clears throat> kind of doing the quick island hop again. But Matthew 1 and verse 18, Jesus is a special name because God himself gave this name to his son, and just like we know certain things about the people that we mentioned at the beginning by their names, that's also true of Jesus. There is something that we know and understand because of his name. Matthew 1 and verse 18 reads, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. We're going to pause there. Uh, Jesus comes from the Hebrew name for Joshua, which means Jehovah is help. It's also translated, Jehovah will save. Jehovah, of course, being Yahweh. Also, we might think of the title, I am who I am, that we hear of in Exodus 3.14, which means unchanging, eternal, self-existing God. The Jews would say Adonai for Lord, Elohim for God, because they thought it just completely out of their League and frankly disrespectful to address God as Yahweh. For instance, we don't address the President of the United States by his first or last name. Rather, it is Mr. President, out of respect for the office. So Jesus means Savior. The next logical question has to be then, well, if that's the case, save from what? Which we see there again in verse 21, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save us from our disobedience to God. For not, not, not being at his perfect standard of holiness, for, for falling short. For being a sinner. And of course sin has consequences. Namely death. Eternal separation from God. Punishment in hell and the lake of fire. And you see in order for Jesus to save us from our sins. He would have to provide the propitiation. That is he would have to provide the proper payment that would appease God's wrath against us. That payment was to be a perfect sacrifice, just like the Old Testament practice of sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, Paul tells us that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And in Hebrews 9 and verse 26 The author of Hebrews tells us, but now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
referring to Christ Jesus. And in Hebrews 10 and verse 12, but he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And of course, the the perfect human sacrifice was indeed Jesus. And because of this sacrifice to appease God's wrath and justice against sin, all who would repent and believe on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Of course, Romans 10 verses 9 to 10 tell us that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. For with the heart a person believes, right? Referring to faith, referring to trust, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. How long will this salvation last? You, you might have said to yourself at one time, or maybe you're sitting there thinking that now. How, how long do I have this salvation for? What, until I sin again? Or how long will the Father and Son love me? Romans 8 35 to 39, it's just a tremendous passage where the Apostle Paul says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor um, things to come, uh, excuse me, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, your salvation is good for eternity. Eternity, friends. This brings us to our second name, and that is the name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Going back to Matthew 1 and verse 22, when the angel was talking to Joseph in his dream, Matthew writes in verse 22, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And I put some parentheses here because uh, just to let you know that he now quotes Isaiah 7, 14, given some 700 years prior when he says behold the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which translated means what God with us so how how could this Jesus be born to a woman a virgin no less without Joseph's involvement and and be God with us? And the answer is in what the angel Gabriel told Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, where the angel says to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So God does a miracle. He does a miracle to place his son in the womb of Mary and allow him to be born as a human being. 
So that makes him 100% flesh and blood and bone, just like you and I, yet he was without sin because he was also 100% God. He is both God and man, the God-man. He was born, he slept, he breathed, he ate, he drank, he laughed, he cried, he died, just as we do. And yet he did it sinlessly, sinlessly. The Bible says that he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The perfect standard, the perfect example for all of us. Emmanuel, God with us, shows that God keeps his promises to always be with us. Looking back from Isaiah, he was, he was with Adam and Eve, wasn't he, in the garden before sin separated them and consequently separated all of us from God. But God was still with his people in some ways as he went with them through the wilderness, a, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He manifested in the holy of holies of the tabernacle. He manifested as the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ at different times, and, and maybe in some sense also even dwelled in the second temple until Jesus' first advent. The second temple, uh, well the first temple being Solomon's temple that was destructed back in the Babylonian exile. Even after he returned to the Father 40 days after his resurrection, who did he send to live and dwell inside of us? His Holy Spirit. Maybe you remember as a child the safety and security, the love that you felt when you were with one of your parents or a grandparent. Maybe you remember the the feeling even of being lost or of being separated from them and, and, and panic sets in. I especially remember always wanting to be with my dad. I just, I wanted to be with him. I knew he wanted to be with me and, and there was a certain protection that I felt from him. It helped that he was a police officer, you know. It always kind of makes you feel better. But how much more meaningful it is to know that our heavenly God, our heavenly Father is with us always and will never leave us or forsake us. It's interesting because the Catholic Church believes that when you participate in the Holy Communion of the Eucharist, that the body and blood of Jesus are literally inside of you. In that sense, God with us kind of takes on a a different kind of a meaning. Um, In fact, in a, a bulletin of a Roman Catholic Church in Wisconsin, this amazing statement by a priest was once printed, quote, There have been a number of people leaving the church a few minutes after they have received Holy Communion. This is a great dishonor to our blessed Lord. The church tells us Jesus remains in our bodies 15 minutes after we have received Holy Communion. That means that our Thanksgiving should be at least 15 minutes long. We should not leave the church until our Lord Jesus is no longer with us. End quote. 
I am so thankful that the Holy Spirit permanently indwells you and I. Amen? Furthermore, the Holy Spirit abiding in us is our promise, our hope, our guarantee of being with the Lord again when he returns and that that same kind of up-close personal relationship that Adam and Eve had. But, of course, better because we will be without sin and, and we will be at that time even without the ability to sin. And furthermore, God with us will be permanent. I mean, does your heart not... Just long, friends, to be with Jesus for all eternity. And this is why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord Or as he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, so we shall always be with the Lord in an even greater way than the Holy Spirit simply indwelling us. This takes us to our third name of Jesus. For that, you can turn to John chapter 10 and verse 7, the door. John 10 and verse 7. Jesus is in the process of telling the parable of the good shepherd to the Pharisees, the Jews, presumably his disciples. And in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 7, it says, So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. And here Jesus is referring to false prophets and people who tried to draw away the sheep of Israel. He says in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And so here Jesus is referring simply to the door of a sheepfold, the sheep pen. The door swings open. And it ushers the sheep inside the pen for things like protection and to to keep the sheep safe from predators. It also leads to the, the feeding troughs, the place of food and water and shelter. Well, I've got to throw in another Charles Dickens reference here because it's Christmas time. But imagine yourself, if you were in the position of, of Charles Dickens' character Oliver, from Oliver Twist, ushered through the door of The unimaginable, the life of an orphan, a horrid existence in the workhouse being sold to an undertaker, basically to be a slave, then thrust into the care of the exploitive Fagin and introduced to the likes of murderous Bill Sykes. It really would be more like going through the door of a slaughterhouse. Of course, that's the fate of our our cattle that we raise for food. Well, we don't have a cow yet, thankfully. We just have pet chickens at home who, in all honesty, went through a very different door. They went through a door into the pen that leads to the lap of luxury, okay? These chickens have it better than, uh, you know, most animals. As Christians, friends, we are the sheep, and when we come to Jesus by faith, he grants us entrance into his 
sheepfold. And it is where we are fed and where we are watered and we are given shelter. We are protected. We are loved. And his sheepfold is both permanent and everlasting and, and nothing can harm you or take you out of the sheepfold of Christ. His kingdom, which offers you salvation and protection that, again, can never be taken away. It can't be stolen. It can't be given up. It can't be lost. It can't be forfeited. But again, we can only come into God's kingdom by way of the door, Jesus. We might remember John 14 and verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus, friends, is our entrance into the Father's kingdom. And he also promises that he has prepared a safe place in his Father's house for anyone who believes in him. In Psalm 95 and verse 7, we read, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And the only way to be one of God's special sheep, then, is to go through The door, which is Jesus. Well, in the same context, just a couple of verses later, Jesus also identifies himself as the good shepherd. John 10 and verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And you might be thinking, so why does he say good? I mean, isn't that the point of being a shepherd? You should be a good shepherd who wants a bad shepherd, right? And doesn't take care of the sheep. Verse uh, 12 tells us, though, how how it is that he is a good shepherd. It says, verse 12 says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf comes and snatches. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Before he was king, what was David? Shepherd, right? Shepherd. You might even remember how he protected the flock in 1 Samuel 17, 34 to 35, we get this really amazing glimpse of David because he's telling this to King Saul and he's trying to convince him to let him take on the Philistine giant Goliath when he says, but David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock and I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard, and I struck him, and I killed him. We kind of think of David sometimes as kind of the, you know, mild, playing the harps, taking care of the sheep, right? Man, no. He was fierce. He went so far, Jesus went so far, as to lay down his life, friends, in order to protect us in order to save us from ourselves, from the consequences of our sin when he went to the cross. And as our good shepherd, how else does he shepherd us? We could look no further than Psalm 23, which tells us that he provides for all of our needs. He gives us rest when we are weary. 
He comforts us when things are at their worst. He protects us from our enemies. He disciplines us. He blesses us in ways that we could never imagine. So whenever you feel lost, you feel confused, worn out, sick, afraid, hungry, thirsty, just needing rest, just call out to the Good Shepherd. Listen for His voice through His Word, through the Holy Spirit, prayer. Keep your eyes fixed on Him, and He will lead you home, back to the sheepfold. We saw that take place here this morning, right? When the shepherd walked off with the candy jays, and what the sheep do? They just followed. Jesus is also called the vine. This is John 15 and verse 5. You can turn there if you like, John 15 and verse 5. Of course, at this point, we are in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples the night before his kangaroo court arrest and trial and going to the cross. And he's comforting his disciples. And in John 15 verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I remember when we lived up north in the mountains. Oh, some of you know these stories, but uh, it was so sweet because you could get a $10 permit from the Forest Service go up into the mountains and cut any size tree that you that you wanted and and we would get those uh what were they the the silver tip you know where those the needles just go upward and they're just beautiful beautiful and you cut it down yourself and you you bring it home and put it up but of course once you cut that tree what starts happening to the tree it starts to die doesn't it And of course, by the time that tree gets down here to Los Angeles, you're still paying $150 and the tree's already half dead, right? You cut a branch off a tree that's still in the ground, the branch will start to die. And so Jesus is the the vine, and we who abide in him, we are the branches, that is Christians, and it means that we get everything we need for life and godliness from him because we are attached to him as the branch he's the source of our eternal life as well as giving us the food and water we need to sustain a a vibrant christian life and testimony of course this comes through the the word of god his holy spirit speaking of the blessed man in psalm 1 love psalm 1 we read this his delight the blessed man right his delight is in the law of the lord and in his law he meditates day and night He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. And so, friends, because we are connected as the branches to the trunk, Jesus, We are receiving all the nutrients, or the vine, Jesus. We are receiving all the nutrients that we need to bear fruit. 
And not just bear fruit, but bear much fruit. And of course, this abiding is compliments of his Holy Spirit, who of course lives inside every believer. And the, the bearing of fruit is certainly the fruit of the Spirit. <clears throat> Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And it's along with that, the deeds done in righteousness, that the fruit of the Spirit now produces in your life. And this includes a love for God, a love for his word, a love for others, reading the scriptures, praying, serving, hanging out with one another at Christmas and telling others about Christ. And lastly, notice that you will not only bear fruit, but the text says you will bear much fruit. Much. It just means a large quantity. If you're not bearing a large quantity, you've got to ask yourself why, because that's what he tells us will happen. And, and this, can, this can be kind of filed in that excel still more category that we learned about from 1 Thessalonians way back when, and also engaging in good deeds from Titus. Sixthly, he's the light of the world. The light of the world. We stay in John and we turn to John chapter 8 and verse 12. Jesus is in the temple. He's with the scribes. He's with the Pharisees and onlookers. Just after they they brought in that adulterous woman before him of whom Jesus said that he did not condemn her. But he also told her to go and do what? Sin no more. And then in John 8 and verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Growing up, my, my family always took the family vacations, and we'd you know, drive here and there and everywhere. And you know, my dad loved taking us to the largest ball of string, and, and uh, forts was a big one. But caves, my parents loved caves. And so we'd always go to caves. And it seemed like every cave you went into, they'd do the same thing. you kind of have the, the lit path and whatnot. And then you'd go you know, into the cave, and the, the ranger or the guide would do what? Turn off the lights. And you, you literally could have your hand up in front of you and you could not see. It was so dark. Have you ever thought what the world would be like even without the sun? Now, I know we couldn't survive and all that, but just, just you know, for a minute, just imagine no sun. Obviously, it would be cold. It would be dark. It would be always night. And so what was the first thing that God created after creating the world itself? Let there be light. And because Adam and Eve sinned against God, a great darkness came upon the earth, the relationship between God and man, because we became separated from his wonderful light. That is, until Jesus comes into the world as the light. Of the world. In John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we read, In him, meaning in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. And so Jesus is the light that makes the darkness in our hearts and souls just melt away and disappear when we put our faith in him. As the Logos, the Word of God, it is His Word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Now, even at Christmas time, here's a way to kind of take some of those Christmas traditions, right? And 
You can kind of Christianize them, I guess. But, but uh, you know, to remind us about the light of the world, of course, yes, we have candles that we have lit. And maybe you have lights on your tree, or maybe you have lights on your house. Christmas lights could also remind us about being the light of the world. And friends, Jesus wants the light that he has given to you as a believer to shine brightly out there to others. And this can happen by showing the love of Jesus to your family, showing the love of Jesus to your friends, and showing the love of Jesus to your neighbors, co-workers. I mean, really anyone you come in contact with. Because God wants them to see the light shining in you and the good works that you do as a Christian that they too could have that light of life, that they too would be able to glorify the God of heaven and earth. Number seven, he's the bread of life. He's the bread of life. This is in John 6. We just keep working our way through John here in verse 35. Jesus is, uh, is in Capernaum teaching the people. And in John six thirty-five, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now Jesus saying that he is the bread of life is is similar to his offering of living water. Bread was very important to people back in Jesus' day, because what does bread do? It feeds, it nourishes, it keeps one satisfied. And we see this this uh, predominant role that bread plays in the Bible, whether it's Jesus multiplying the loaves and the fishes, or, or even Satan turning the stones to bread in the temptation of Jesus, or of course the manna that was given to the Israelites from heaven to sustain them. Now, don't you just love to eat hot, fresh bread? I imagine that tonight, maybe, or tomorrow, some of your Christmas dinners may include rolls, crescent rolls, dinner rolls, maybe even of the homemade variety. And you're going to slather those hunks of yummy goodness with hot, melted, buttery yum, right? I remember one time, I remember we had friends that, uh, that um, the fellow worked at a bakery and he took us down and gave us a tour, kind of after hours of the bakery. Oh, I think the night crew was going on and there's a conveyor belt with all the loaves of bread and he just reaches out and grabs one and choom, breaks it and hands us fresh bread right off the conveyor belt, all warm and ready to go and good stuff, huh? Good stuff, that bread. Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3 as Moses reminding the people how God provided for their physical needs of food. But even more, he is wanting to provide for their spiritual needs. And he says, he humbled you, and he let you be hungry, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that a man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And isn't that what Jesus said to Satan when he was being tempted? And so, friends, as you eat all of that Yummy food and bread this Christmas, the cookies and the breads and the pastries and the coffee cakes and the dinner rolls. Remember who provided that, right? God provided that yummy goodness to bring um, sustenance and health to your body, but he also provides even more importantly spiritual bread. He provides your spiritual food through his son, the very bread of life. Be filled with him and be satisfied in him. 
Well, he's also called the Lamb of God in John chapter 1. We're almost out of John, huh? John chapter 1 and verse 29. When John the Baptist is at the Jordan River and he's baptizing people who would repent of their sins in preparation for the coming Christ, it says the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, come on, who who doesn't, you know... Love a cute, little, adorable, fuzzy, furry lamb. And did you know that sheep are mentioned some 750 times in the scriptures? And of course, people pictured the Messiah, the Savior, to come and be more like a powerful lion and take care of Rome and all their enemies. But what many people or most people didn't expect was for Jesus to come as a lamb. And even allowing himself to be led to the slaughter. And thankfully God knew exactly what we all needed. Someone who could become the perfect sacrifice in order to forgive our wickedness and sin. And of course lambs were used as sacrifices to bring God's forgiveness to a sin-laden people back in the Old Testament times. Each year, they would have to bring a perfect spotless lamb to the temple to be killed by the priest so that they could receive God's forgiveness. And they would have to do this year after year, sometimes traveling great distances to get to the temple in Jerusalem. And and how they longed, how they longed for, for one sacrifice that would bring forgiveness for all their sins once and for all the messiah and that's what god did in sending his perfect lamb jesus jesus willingly became the once for all perfect and complete sacrifice when he went to the cross and yet as we mentioned he is also known as number nine the lion the lion of judah And we see this in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5 where we have the apostle John's vision. He's in the throne room of God and he's watching this, this heavenly scene play out before him where an angel is asking, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? The book being that which contains God's final plan of judgment and salvation and from john's perspective no one was found to be worthy and the text says and one of the elders said to me stop weeping behold the lion that is from the tribe of judah the root of david is overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals and it Christmas time, we think of Jesus and, and we normally picture him in that tiny, gentle, sweet, kind of helpless babe situation in the manger. Not a powerful, roaring lion which is both fierce towards its enemies and yet tender towards its cubs. Makes me think of Aslan from the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe and how tender and compassionate he was to the children And yet there's that scene when the witch looks up at him and he just and attacks and kills her. Mighty against his enemies. 
Well, our scripture reminds us that Jesus is the lion, and he is from the tribe of Judah. And this is a special group, a royal tribe of God's people, the Jews. Years before Jesus was ever born, the Bible told us that he would come from this royal tribe. His father Joseph came from the family of King David, the royal tribe of Judah. Joseph and Mary legally betrothed, so Jesus, born to Mary, is the lion from the tribe of Judah. And he is called Lion because he is our mighty king. He is stronger than all our enemies. He is the one who has conquered sin and he has conquered death and he has conquered the devil on behalf of all who would believe in him. And, and who deserves to have an almighty king die for them? None of us. And yet we who believe in him, we are his cubs, and he loves us and protects us. And again, nothing can separate us from the great love that he has for us. Friends, let me tell you, he is also the bright morning star. The bright morning star of Revelation 22 and verse 16, which Jesus says to John in John's vision, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Think of what part a star plays in the Christmas story. Matthew 2 and verse 2 has the wise men asking, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And then in chapter 2, verse 9, the star which they, meaning the wise men, had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. Now the movement of the star suggests that it is It is not a natural phenomenon. It's not a a comet or a supernova or, you know, conjunction with the planets and whatever. It was rather supernatural. Some have said uh, it was a guiding angel that appeared as a star or or perhaps some some specially created heavenly phenomena, even God's Shekinah glory, his presence, that had the brightness of a star. The wise men, the wise men might have read Balaam's Old Testament prophecy that, quote, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Numbers 24 and verse 17. And this was understood by the Jews to point to that messianic deliverer. Zacharias in his prophecy also identified the Messiah saying, the sunrise from on high will visit us. Jesus says that he is the bright morning star. He is the brightest star as the day dawns. And we also learn from 2 Peter 1 and verse 19 that for all who follow Jesus, the morning star will arise in their hearts. Now how can we we follow then this bright morning star? And like the wise men who followed the star in their search to find the Christ child in order that they would worship him, we too, friends, must seek. We too must follow Jesus, worshiping him in spirit and truth, walking in the light of his glory, and serving him with our whole hearts. And of course, 
He is also the King of kings and He is the Lord of lords. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 verses 14 and 15, speaking of the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will bring about at the proper time, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I don't know about you, I, I, haven't, I haven't met a real king or queen. Uh, maybe the closest I've gotten, with the exception of all the masterpiece theater shows my wife and I watch, uh, you know, was getting to go to London one time and seeing places like the Buckingham Palace and Parliament, Westminster Abbey, going to the Tower of London and, and being able to see the, the crown jewels there, which is pretty amazing. But no two names describes the majesty power and sovereignty of Jesus more than his title king of kings and lord of lords all respect and all honor and all ability and all authority and all control are his in psalm 2 verses 6 to 12 God tells the kings and the judges of the world to worship the lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling And he also tells them to give honor to his son, Jesus. God promises that if the kings, judges, and rulers of the earth will trust him and obey him, he will bless them as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And we also know from the scriptures that Jesus is to be the one in control over our lives as well. He is to be the Lord of our life. We need to put our faith, trust firmly in Him. Jesus has a plan for the world, and friends, He has a plan for you. He does. He has a plan for you. He has a plan for me. And, and so often we, we, we let the things of this world take the rightful place of God in our lives. We bow down to the idols of the world. And I'm not talking about statues, of course. I'm I'm talking about, oh, dare we say it? Ourselves? That we bow down to self, we secretly, or maybe not so secretly, advocate for us being king, for us being Lord, when we need to do the opposite and let Jesus reign supreme in our lives. Number twelfth and finally, friends. The last name that we will look at today of Jesus, probably the most important here, Savior. Savior, 1 John chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, where John writes, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God, I'm going to ask a really dumb question. How many of you enjoy Christmas presents? Right? I mean, just for a moment, just, just think about like the greatest, greatest present that you have ever received. All right, here's your chance. Shout it out. Ready? Ready, kids? One, two, three. <laughs> oh, oh, the default answer. <laughs> but that's a good answer. Jesus. <laughs> God wants to give you the greatest present of all, bar none. He wants to give you his son, 
Jesus. Why? Because he is a loving God. For God so loved the world, right? That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And what does Jesus' name mean again? Jehovah saves. The Lord is salvation. Jesus is our Savior. And what did we say earlier that we needed to be saved from? We need to be saved from our sins and the consequences of our sins because we are sinners through and through. There is none righteous, not even one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus, he offers us this most amazing free gift of forgiveness. He removes the burden from us. Forgiveness of sins followed by eternal life with him. And of course, how is it that we can receive this most incredible and amazing free gift by turning from your sins and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? Repenting of your sins and believing on him. Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in Acts 16. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God In John chapter 1. And so, folks, I hope this morning, I hope and pray that you you maybe learned something about Jesus. Maybe you learned that that you haven't been saved at this point, but that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And you need to repent and believe. Maybe... Maybe there was a, a fire that was kind of starting to smolder a bit and, and maybe it was starting to go out. and Maybe it's gotten reignited, rekindled. Maybe, maybe you're able to take something that you knew before, but you're able to make a fresh application of it. Whatever the case may be, I pray that these names of Jesus will serve you well, that, that, they, will, that they will indeed draw you closer to him, that you would love him more, that you would worship him more, that you would obey him more, that you would adore him more this Christmas season and throughout the year. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for the many tremendous, wonderful truths that we have been able to draw from your word of truth this morning. Lord, of course, if there is anyone here that has yet to put their faith and their trust, their belief in Jesus as their Savior, I pray that right now, Father, they would be praying a prayer of even silent repentance, just letting you know that they recognize they are a sinner in need of a Savior that they are sorry for their sins and the, the Savior is Jesus and they trust in what he did on the cross on their behalf but that he also went into the ground but three days later rose victoriously from the dead. And that, Lord, if they would repent and believe, they will have the gift of the Holy Spirit to live in them eternally. Lord, that they would indeed be saved. We pray this all in your son Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.
Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.